Each of us has a unique career story to tell. For some, these fly high like rocket launches. For others, they're more like the game of shoots and ladders with advances and setbacks along the way. Either way, we learn countless lessons from these experiences. And that's what we put into the spotlight here at Career Sessions Career Lessons. Join discussions featuring a variety of guests sharing their stories of ups and downs, as well as the secrets of their success and what drives them to continue moving forward. We break down the tools and resources that will help you establish your dream career and realize your professional goals. Here's your host, J.R. Lowry. Hi, this is J.R. Lowry, and this is Career Sessions, Career Lessons, which is brought to you by Pathwise.io. Pathwise is dedicated to helping you live the career you deserve. Basic membership is free, so visit Pathwise.io online and join today. Today, we are delving into the world of artificial intelligence and big data. My guest is Claire Flynn-Levy, who I met when we were both working in fintech in London about six or seven years ago. Claire is the founder and chief executive officer of Essentia Analytics, a fintech firm that uses artificial intelligence and machine learning to help investment professionals identify their decision-making biases and adapt accordingly with the objective of improving their investment performance. Think about it as money ball for the financial services industry. Claire has spent the vast majority of her career in the investment management and related technology spaces working for established firms as an entrepreneur. She started her career as a portfolio manager for a division of Deutsche Asset Management, and then she founded her own hedge fund, Avaset Capital Management, while still in her 20s. Following several years there, she made the jump over to the technology side of the industry, joining a software provider called Line Data, where she ran a division that provided hedge fund software. She returned to the investment management space, leading business development for the hedge fund Tisbury Capital Management, before moving on to an investment advisory firm, Ellsworthy Associates, where she was the managing director. Along the way, Claire also spearheaded the Equilibrant Network, which focused on bringing flexibility into the workplace and offering consulting opportunities to members. She's also been active in the Young Presidents Organization, and she has served as a non-executive director for several firms spanning health food, executive search, and enterprise social networking. She's earned a number of awards and honors, including being named Technology Innovator of the Year last year and being recognized as one of the 30 most inspirational women in the City of London in 2018. Claire earned her bachelor's degree in economics from Barnard College and spent time abroad during her undergraduate years studying at the London School of Economics. She lives in Connecticut with her husband and two preteen sons. Claire, welcome. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks for being here. Great to be here. Awesome. So tell our audience, let's start with your current role. Tell our audience a little bit about Essentia Analytics. Sure. Well, Essentia does effectively sports analytics for equity fund managers. We take their historical trading data, identify patterns in their behavior that are consistently adding or destroying value, and then we help them play to their strengths and minimize their weaknesses on a go-forward basis using a combination of technology and coaching. Great. And some of the underlying technology is machine learning, artificial intelligence-based, right? It is, although that's a very wide term. It can mean a lot of things. The part of it that we use is the least sexy part, I'm guessing. And yet machine learning is being brought into everything these days. It's advancing so quickly. It is. It is. And to your point, I mean, it's a big topic. It's a very broad topic. The words get thrown around very loosely. So if you want to get more than a little bit deep, you have to really understand methodology and technology. And most people 
don't necessarily want to get that deep in it. So the average person who you would consider a portfolio manager or somebody that nature who would be using your software, how do you pitch it to them? How's the explanation work in layman's terms for somebody in that space, maybe who isn't super deep on artificial intelligence technology? Well, it really depends on what their pain is. Active fund managers are in general in a lot of pain, having been disrupted as an industry by passive index funds and much cheaper alternatives. And it's been like a very slow process, but assets have been flowing out of active and passive, and that is what it is. And yet, active fund management continues to exist, and there are still large investors who prefer to invest with active managers than passive for a number of reasons, but to do with their needs and their end investors' needs. So that means that if you are an active fund manager, you've got this sort of like macro threat of outflows hanging over you the whole time. If your performance is excellent, then that's less threatening. If it's less than excellent, if you're not in the top quartile, that gets a little scary. So in some cases, our clients are coming to us from that perspective. They want to improve their performance because they want to preserve their AUM. In some cases, though, they're coming to us having performed very well, and they are just the continuous improver type of person in their lives. They have used to be Fitbit. Now it's probably an aura ring, or a, <laughs> but this is a triathlete. It's just somebody who is constantly trying to improve. And not surprisingly, that person tends to perform very well. But what they use us for is obviously visibility into how to improve and the means to actually do it but also to differentiate in the market as investing. So many funds, just it's all the same. <laughs> the decks, they're all the same. And as a manager of something other than an ESG fund, maybe, <laughs> which have been attracting assets, if you're in a more standard type of strategy, you've got to find a way to differentiate yourself. And being able to tell stories of continuous improvement and show proof and actual quantified skill and quantified absence of skill and acknowledgement of that ends up playing very well with investors. Your comparison to the sports world, I mean, this is sort of like sports world had money ball. This is like money, money. I mean, it's directly <laughs> relevant, but it's yeah. interesting when you think about the fact that professional athletes have really embraced all of this data and analytics that's pervaded the sports world. And in the investment world, and I know you know this better than anybody else probably, it's not always an easy pitch, right? You've still got people who believe in doing their stock picking in a very different fashion. Yeah, it's true. I mean, to be fair, in sports, it took a long time too. And you had, I'm sure you saw Moneyball, the like of course. old codger in the stands who says, I judge them by the whites of their eyes or whatever. It's like these people continue to believe that their old way of doing things is the right way of doing it and don't necessarily notice that the world is changing around them yeah. quite dramatically. And that somebody who has actual data as a support for their decision-making has a massive advantage. And the moral of the story is, of course, everybody then ends up converting. All sports, it's not even just baseball. It's like literally every sport Everything. now has that. But it's taken decades. It's not been fast. And the fund management industry we know is extremely slow to change just in general. But yeah, it's taking decades. Yeah. And yet it is happening. It's There is a new generation of fund management talent that is sort of finally ascending to senior levels where they actually have some influence. And that's a big driver, but also sort of balance of power has shifted in the industry in favor of the investor in a way that it hasn't been in the past. And mm -hmm. 
post-financial crisis, that was probably the big pivot point. But the investor has access to data too. If they have a separately managed account, they absolutely can do this analysis themselves on you if you're not willing to do it for them. So you may as well just do it and deal with the reality of what it has to say. It's not all bad. People kind of clench and think, oh God, I don't want to even know. It's not all bad. You're a professional fund manager. You got here for a reason. It's not that you were a total fraud. However, you're probably spending some of your energy on things that are not helping because you're human and that's what humans do. We're biased. We're noisy. Like That's what we do. And if you knew you were doing it and you could see exactly what it was, you could stop doing that. It is possible. It's not that hard, actually. You just have to want to do it in the first place. Yeah. So you started this back in 2013. So you sort of nine and a half years in. What was it that led you to this particular idea back then? Well, so essentially solving a problem that I had myself. That's where this is coming from. I was an equity fund manager in the late 90s at Morgan Grenfell Asset Management in London, which was part of Deutsche Asset Management. And then after that, I ran my own long, short European tech hedge fund in the early 2000s. And I went from, I was a tech specialist. I should make that point. I was the first generation of kid to grow up with a computer in their dorm room in the US. And so when I went to London, pre-internet effectively, there was a five-year lag going on. And so I knew all about this thing. It was called the internet and (laughs) email. And I ended up being very much in the right place at the right time, as far as my comparative advantage, let's say, in terms of my expertise. A bit like the crypto expert is now, or the blockchain kid that you sort of, oh, we got one of those. He knows all about it. We don't understand it, but (laughs) he does. So that's good. That was me. And so I became the tech specialist as an investor and ended up picking lots of stocks that went up a lot. Everyone was very happy. I won all the awards. It was all good. And that's because my performance was good. And this is an industry that looks at recent performance and rewards that. Was I skilled? Who knows? Probably on some level, I would like to think I was skilled. It wasn't just a coincidence. But without analyzing the data, you don't actually know is the truth of the matter. And when I launched my hedge fund, launched in March of 01, which was, I'm sure you remember those times as well as I do. It was dot-com bust. It was actually not that dissimilar to the market we're in right now, where you just had a big dislocation and what had been working for a really long time is like not working. And especially if you're a tech investor. (laughs) And so I said, okay, that's fine. This will pass. I'll just keep at it. And I ended up running very hard to stay in one place for four years. I didn't lose lots of money, but I did not make lots of money either. And I couldn't figure out what it is that I should be doing differently to get a better result. I was young to all of this and I I had a big birthday. I was turning 30, if you can believe it. And I was already like four years into this. And I asked myself in the mirror, what are you doing? (laughs) Your return on energy expended is negative and going lower. And if that was a stock, you would be a seller. And this is way more valuable than a stock. It's your life. Like Life is short. And another decade has now passed. Shouldn't you be doing something where you can see your way to success and you can prove that you have a competitive advantage? Mm. Yes. I mean, that to me, there's just very black and white logic to it. And so I looked for it. I said, okay, somebody can analyze all my trades. I'm capturing them. Even back then, you were capturing all your trades in the system. Somebody tell me what I'm good at and I'll do more of it and tell me what I'm bad at and I'll do less of that. But nobody could do that because the industry at the time 
the tech was very focused on just electronic trading. That was like right. the first port of call. That was too early. And the processing power to do the maths that you have to do for this, the machine learning and all of that was not in place, obviously. So I couldn't do it. And in the end, I decided I got to cut bait. Like, this is not worth it. I'm not going to keep investing my life in this if I don't really see how to improve. So long story short, I, then I went into a, an existing software company that made software for, for hedge funds on the basis that the customer running the company should be a competitive advantage. I know more about what hedge fund managers want from software than somebody who has not been a hedge fund manager using software. And that did play out to be true. So that was a successful stint in my career. We sold that company and then I went back to a hedge fund actually, but on the business side and I spent the financial crisis there. Interesting. Not lots of laughs, but <laughs> it was a big learning experience. And by the end, when I left, I was pregnant with my first child and I had some time to think about it and think about what did I like and not like about each of my last roles. And one thing I really liked about the hedge fund job was that I was effectively assuming the role of a coach and I was doing a lot of data analysis because it was all hands on deck to try and stop the investors from leaving right. and prove to them our skill is intact, don't leave. Now, that probably wouldn't have worked anyway because everyone needed liquidity and it was a credit crunch. But I could see how hard it was to prove quantitatively the presence of skill. And I thought, that problem, it's still there. That problem is the exact same problem I had. Whether that fund manager felt that he needed to prove it to himself in the way that I did is probably not. But either way, his investors wanted that proof. So not yeah. only does the fund manager need to know this stuff, but the investors want to know. And that led me to start Essentia to solve this problem that affects every single fund manager out there, whether they realize it or not. Yeah. So what's that entrepreneurial journey been like for you over the last nine plus years? It's so crazy that it's been nine plus years. I talk about like, these things take decades <laughs> to be adopted. We're doing something not based solely on what's the quickest way to make a buck. If right. you were doing that, this would not be it. However, it started with an idea that made total sense. Help people do more of what they're good at and less of what they're not good at. And if their job is to make investment decisions, and those investment decisions involve millions and billions of dollars, then that's a valuable service to be providing. So mm. it makes sense to do that. So we raised money on day one. I had some money from the sale of previous software company that I put into it. And then I had a handful of basically friends, not even family, friends who believed in this, believed in me, and they invested. And funnily enough, I, I was just on holiday with those same people in Corfu last week, which was amazing. I mean, these are people who have very much been the wind beneath my wings as I've built this company and have stayed with me and have continued to invest in future rounds and have been really amazing supporters. But it started with that. And then we really lived off angel money every six months would raise more angel money. And because, well, A, I knew so little about raising money for private venture. I mean, it's so I had raised lots of money for the funds that I was running, right. but that's a very different thing. So I was pretty naive when I look back on it, but I didn't understand the metrics that you needed to achieve in order to be eligible to raise larger amounts of money. And so I would end up back in front of angels over and over and then found that angel investors who were not from the fund management industry, they were super positive about my pitch, but they would say like, 
uh, it's not really my area. It's all a bit complicated. And then the next pitch after me is selling some consumer product that they right. bought yesterday and is way, way more obvious to them as the thing to invest in. So, but that said, gathered over the years a really great investor base of angels, including you know, the former CEO of Man Group, Peter Clark, Charlie Ellis, Tom Kolaris, like names that are very well entrenched in the industry and who have been very wise and very helpful along the way. So that's been good. But by 2019, so six years in, five and a half years, I guess, we had got to the magical number of 100,000 pounds, I think it was, monthly recurring revenue. Mm -hmm. That is what the Series A VC investors wanted to see in order for you to be eligible for investment. And it took me that long to figure that out, but eventually I did. And we actually, we did a little accelerator program with PwC had an accelerator program for scale-ups. And that year we did that. At the end, you know, they spent all this time helping you get your pitch to be in order for this audience. And then you pitch. And we ended up meeting a firm called Calculus Capital out of London at that event. And they then ended up investing in our company in a Series A, which made it possible for us to finally hire some more people. We were living very much hand to mouth. So that was great. We had a great 2019. And then in 2020, it was like Q1, all systems are go. We were killing it. And then COVID hit. Mm. And it's not like we were a restaurant or a hair salon. So it wasn't devastating at all. But it meant that people were extremely distracted for two quarters, I would say. And by people, I mean our target market, fund managers, heads of equity, CIOs, everybody was moving remote. They weren't necessarily set up for that. The market was so volatile, it was all crazy. And nobody's interested in thinking about software that's going to help them make better investment decisions in the future in that moment. And that's part of, of what makes it tough on my entrepreneurial journey. It would be an upward graph, but that's like a fairly volatile graph because there's never a good time for this. When you're a fund manager, the market is always demanding your immediate attention. And unless you are very good at tuning that out and really true to your word about being long-term, there's never a good time to think about this stuff. So the urgency, although, I mean, it's so ironic because what could be more urgent if I told you that I could help you make a slightly better decision every single time you make a decision starting right now, what's more like the compound effect of that is insane. Well, it's like, yeah. the, I'm going to start my diet tomorrow exactly, or I'm going to, exactly. I'll join a gym next month. It's the exactly. same thing. It's just, you've got to make Behavioral it. Behavioral change. It's yeah. hard. It's hard. At any rate, so we had everything sort of screeched to a halt for a couple of quarters and then it came back well at the end of that year. And then since then, it's just been about growing. And Where then at the today? end... Well, so we have, we're about 50 people now. I should explain, at the end of last year, we signed a strategic partnership with Northern Trust and they invested a little bit of money in the company and that afforded us the ability to add people to our team in the R&D side in particular, because we have grand plans. We have nine and a half years of experience on analyzing fund manager data and helping them, like nudging them, as we call it, nudging them to make better decisions and measuring whether that works. Like there's so much you can do with that. And yet that does require investing in advance of revenue. And so earlier this year, I added a lot of people to our team. So we're now 50 people, about uh, 40 of which are in London. I'm in the US along with the other 10 or nine, I guess. We are, our client base is 30 odd firms around the world. 
you know, very large asset managers in a lot of cases, but also some hedge funds you'd never heard of before. Probably two thirds long only, one third hedge. Mm. All equity though. And I think it's about 150 portfolio managers, something like that, that are live working with us today, which is, yeah, I mean, (laughs) it's taken a long time to get here. And yet that's not nothing. That's actually an installed base. And a handful of them that have really worked what we do into their marketing pitches and really are using it as a way of differentiating in the market. And I think the more that goes on, the more investors will start asking about it. Where's your behavioral analytics? And the fund manager who doesn't know what that is, is going to be feeling pretty stupid. So... Yeah. I mean, it could be going back to the Moneyball example or analogy. Mm -hmm. As you said, it took probably 20 years for that to take off, maybe longer. If you go back Mm -hmm. to the Sabre metrics, that the origin Mm -hmm. of the Moneyball story. But I mean, at this point, to your point, everybody uses it pretty much in every sport. And if you don't, you're You're not playing, (laughs) you're missing out on something. Right. So, yeah, it just it it has to hit that tipping point. And it's probably still out there in terms of when that tipping point will happen. And ESG is another example in the fund management industry. I mean, it's been around forever, but it's now hitting that tipping point where there's just an incredible amount of focus on it. And for the people who've been doing it for decades, they're like, it's about time, but yeah. it was really painful getting to this point. We have a client who falls into that category. They've been at this for at least 10 years. Yeah. And finally, ESG is becoming a thing. But yeah. it's great to see that that eventually all credit to the millennial generation, actually, for driving this because actually caring about that stuff. I mean, back in my day, people would laugh. We had SRI, remember? SRI is like socially Mm. responsible investment. We had Gordon Gecko. Yeah, exactly. I mean, what people really thought was Gordon Gecko and the rest was just lip service and no one took that seriously. And now it's like, wow, I mean, total change. But it's taken a generation of humans to yeah. move through the pipeline and force the demand in that direction. Yeah. You know? And I think it's going to keep going that way for a while yet. Yeah, I think you're right. I want to go back to the, your hedge fund days because you were running a hedge fund starting in your late 20s as a yeah. woman, which is like really <laughs> rare on a number of dimensions. What was that like? It's, so, it's kind of funny, isn't it? In retrospect, I didn't know any other female hedge fund managers, I don't think. There might have been some, but I don't even know. I had, though, grown up at least to that point, surrounded by men in this industry. And I didn't really think much of it. (laughs) I just thought I can do this. And actually, if it hadn't been for one person in particular, Mike Lynch, Mike Lynch from Autonomy, very much in the news, lots of press out there about him. But I can say this as somebody who knows him very well. He backed me. I got to know him because he was running Autonomy and I was we owned a huge stake in Autonomy at Morgan Grenfell. And he identified me as talent and said, first of all, I want you to run my money. And I said, I don't want to run money for one person. And he said, well, let's start a fund. I think you can do this. And I didn't actually, I mean, I wouldn't have done it without that vote of confidence from somebody who I respected a lot. I still respect a lot. He convinced me that I could do this. And then we went out and raised money and we did it. And he just let me, he sat back and I ran the show and He didn't sit back. He had a company of his own to run that was far more valuable than my hedge fund. But yeah, it was a very different time in a lot of different ways. And it was kind of weird to be the only woman 
who was a fund manager at hedge fund events, people would ask me to get them coffee and stuff like that all the time. (laughs) So that's just part of the experience of a woman in finance of my generation. You just like got on with it. And in the end, though, I think I realized, well, A, that I wasn't sure I had a, a competitive advantage after all. And I really believed I did when we started because I knew the European tech CEOs pretty well because of my position at Morgan Grenfell and they were a large asset manager at the time. So I had good contacts, but where was the performance? (laughs) It wasn't there. So I'm really scratching my head about it. And I think between that and also realizing the longer I worked in the hedge fund industry, the more I realized how it actually worked and there is a competitive or there was a competitive advantage. I don't know to what extent it's been diluted now, but the biggest players got the call first from the brokers and lo and behold, would have all the best trades going and would get in early. They'd get the best allocations of things. And I was not that, the biggest player that is. I was running like 85 million, which at the time was a big fund, funnily enough, but certainly wasn't as big as the really big players. Right. But also there was a lot of nasty behavior, just nasty. And more and more, I realized if you really want to succeed at this, you need to be much meaner than you are. And do I really want to be that person? I actually don't want to be that person. Mm. It sort of all came to a head around the same time with me having these conversations with myself and asking myself these questions. Saying like, this is not my dream was to be a fund manager, and I achieved it very young. Yeah. And I got there, and I looked around, and was like, now what? This isn't that great, actually. It's really mm. hard, really stressful, and to win, I need to be a version of myself I'm, I don't actually want to be. So maybe I shouldn't be a fund manager after all, which is a bit of a crisis to hit in one's career when particularly at the ripe age of 30. It was a difficult time. It wasn't like, it took a long time for me to think my way through it. And But when I did, I think I had read Jim Collins' Good to Great around right. that time. And I had learned about this concept of like identifying the intersection of what you're good at, what you're passionate about, what the market wants. And I would add to that who you know, because I learned that that mattered a lot. After the financial crisis and when I was when I had left the hedge fund, that came into play as I was thinking about what I wanted to do next. And ultimately, it led to me starting Essentia. It's been a wild ride so far. I uh, can't imagine it's going to get much calmer. So it's fine. I'm, uh, I've learned a hell of a lot. And yeah. I do so much study of human behavior, whether it's data study of our clients or I'm just reading about it. I've learned yeah. so much about myself this whole time. I think I'm a different person in a lot of ways as yeah. a result of that. You talked before we started about the greats of behavioral science and for Many people, I think that whole field has just been an epiphany. It finally explains why rational behavior doesn't always occur. And it's probably like everything that becomes part of pop versions of things. It's probably been overplayed in some spaces, but there's just ample evidence through all of this research that's been going on over the years about what a powerful force it is. And so applying it to the space or frankly, to any other, you can change behavior. You can really influence outcomes. All of your reading sort of came together in this venture that you started back in 2013. Yeah. But the part that intrigues me always is how can I use this information to change my own behavior? 
Yeah. Whereas advertising execs have known this this whole time, right? Yeah. <laughs> They've been manipulating us forever since day one of advertising yep. because they observe that you do this and the people do that. And we have been manipulated. We continue to be manipulated by people who have this knowledge now, at least as it's like yeah. video game makers and social media and whatever else. And they can A-B test every little thing and they yeah. fully are manipulating us. And so be it, right? But I mean, oh, yeah. we can choose to do that or not do that and play video games. Actually, I was talking to somebody yesterday who said he has a second phone at the weekend that's called the dumb phone. And it's just like a flip phone that has no... He has a smartphone for the week and a dumb phone for the weekend as a means to not being able to mm. get his dopamine hit from his smartphone. And his question was, I wonder what will happen if I do that. Will I seek that satisfaction through other things? And the answer was yes. He found that he had like a to-do list that had been the same to-do list around the house for a zillion years. And after one weekend with the dumb phone, that to-do list went right down because he got his fix from those small moments of achievement when you finally cleaned out the closet or changed the light bulb in the chandelier or whatever it is. You are you know, giving was, a lot of spouses and partners an idea right now. <laughs> I wasn't brave enough to do it myself. I was thinking, God, I mean, I can totally see how that would work though, because you do need to get your dopamine hit some way. The easiest way is by looking at your phone. But anyway, the point is that so many people are out there using this science already quietly to sell us stuff and keep our attention. But what if we knew this about ourselves? How could we use it? Just like somebody wearing an aura ring or a Fitbit or whatever. What can I do knowing this data about yeah. myself? Oh, now I know. I could read in a book that I shouldn't look at a LED screen before I go to sleep, right? I read on my iPad every night and I know that I'm not supposed to do that because it's supposed to jeopardize my deep sleep. And it, yet, until I see the actual data that proves to me that this is going on and that my deep sleep is sacrificed, I won't change my behavior. Yeah. But the second I do see it, I have a choice. I can either say, I don't care and I don't need deep sleep. And okay, I get that um, science says that we need deep sleep, but I don't maybe. Or I can say, no, I believe it and I'm going to do something about it. But then once you start capturing this data about your sleep, you can be capturing data about how do you feel during the day. And if you can start to connect the dots and say, God, you know what? I really do have a crappy day every time I don't get the deep sleep because I'm reading with a backlight. And it's like hard evidence, I yeah. think, that makes people actually act. And the question is whether they're brave enough to go there. I know you've talked about women mentors helping you along the way. Talk a little bit about that. Where did you find them and how did they help you? Yeah, in retrospect, so much of my career path has come from that. And it wasn't that I was specifically looking for female role models. It was more that when I identified one in the space where I wanted to be, I thought I'm going to hitch my flag to that mast and follow her. And so when I started my fund management career in the mailroom at Gabelli Funds in, in Rye, New York. And then back then, we would send these prospectuses in the post to people who filled in little things in a magazine. <laughs> I'm really aging myself now. And then I worked my way up to the 1-800-Gabelli phone line, and I was answering phones. And I was a, a college student at the time. And then I found out that Mario Gabelli had a business partner called Liz Bramwell. And she was a growth, Gabelli growth fund manager. She was a woman. 
<laughs> and she was based in New York in the city and doing her own strategy. And they had been at business school together. So she really was like a proper pioneer of women on Wall Street. She must have been in her late 50s at the time. She's mm. sadly passed away since then. But anyway, I went to work for her. And just being somewhere where there was a woman in charge meant that that was a possibility in general, that maybe one day I could end up being in charge. And I like the idea of working at a place where that was already the case. And then actually, when I graduated from college, I was doing the whole Wall Street. I went to Barnard College at Columbia University in New York and very much on purpose so that I could work on Wall Street through college, which again, like in retrospect, that sounds very strange, <laughs> but... I was into it. I was into the whole fun. I wanted to be a fund manager and working for Gabelli and for Liz definitely added fuel to that fire. And then when uh, school finished, I, I was doing interviews at various firms and I wrote a letter to the alumni department of my prep school. And I was going to London. I had done my junior year abroad at the London School of Economics and I was going back to visit and I wanted to see if I could maybe get a job there. You know, I've loved London. I really wanted to be there and it's worth a shot. And so I wrote to the school and said, give me a list of all of the alumni in finance that are based in London. And then I wrote them all typed letters. I mean, like on a typewriter. <laughs> and one of them was to a woman called Nicola Horlick, who at the time was running Morgan Grenfell Asset Management's UK business. And again, like she, that was very unprecedented. She was young too. She was in her thirties, I think at the time. And she had worked her way to this role where she was in charge. And she said, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll see you when you come over. We can have a chat. And I ended up getting a job from her. And I thought, I didn't even know. I did zero research on Morgan Grenfell. I thought, Morgan, that sounds good. <laughs> and there's a female boss. And these people all respect her. They seem to. Yeah. So that seems like a good call. And I was lucky, like that could have backfired massively, but it didn't. It was a fantastic place to be. It yeah. was a great group of people. They did respect her. And to this day, I just had uh, breakfast with one of my bosses at Morgan Grenfell for a long time. It was a guy called Adrian Frost, who still runs a, the Artemis Equity Income Fund. And we're still friends to this day. I mean, we had such a great time, all of us, during those years. So, And yet Nicola... She took a chance on me. She definitely looked out for me on some level throughout. And then in the end, she was at my wedding. My father made a speech where he talked at least as much about Nicola as he did about me. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, saying thank you for what you did to guide her. And it was honestly the presence of these women alone was a big piece of it. The fact that they existed yeah. and then they did sort of reach down and grab my hand and pull me up which has been going on for men for <laughs> since time began. But for women, that wasn't really happening, not on the golf course, not on the, at the racket club. We weren't there. Right. So having that made a huge difference, I think, in my life. And as I was saying to you earlier now, people ask me to speak to their daughter and I get young women who, who will get in touch and just want to chat and understand what wisdom I might have to share. And I'm very happy to do it because it was done for me. As long as women keep doing that for each other, it's going to work yeah. itself out. It will work <laughs> itself out. Yeah. But there's a lot of work still to do. There is. <laughs> Although I have to say in asset management, I mean, you could argue, of course, this is happening when the proverbial is hitting the fan. There is science that shows that women 
get appointed CEO when the company's in total disarray, <laughs> when it's just like a mess is when they bring the woman in. But it is really great to see so many women now taking CIO, CEO, what very senior leadership positions in these asset managers at a disproportionate rate, certainly compared to the past. And it is my generation of women that are doing that. So that makes me really happy to see. Yeah. So are you at this point, do you feel like Essentia is kind of your home for the foreseeable future? Would you ever see yourself going back into the fund management space itself? Yeah, no, (laughs) I do not see myself going back into the fund management space. Well, certainly not as a fund manager. I mean, on a business management basis, it's not impossible. I know so much at this point and I have a certain amount of expertise that's quite unique and a network of front office people that's insane. So that would be valuable to somebody in the fund management business. But actually what really excites me is the software side of it and There are aspects of what we're doing at Essentia that are applicable well outside of investment management. And so that's where I'll probably end up going one day. But we still have so much work to do at Essentia. And I want to live to see this become a must-have, an industry standard. I think it will, just like Moneyball. I think it will. But it's like, you got to still be there when it happens. <laughs> so that's well, my quest. You've been at it for nine plus years and it's your baby. So it's only natural to want to see it sort of become fully entrenched in the industry. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. I've had my ups and downs over the nine years, but I remember reading a book called The Dip. My big takeaway from that was most people give up. And if you don't give up, you automatically have a competitive advantage. Now you might be wasting your time on something that you shouldn't be doing and you shouldn't give up. And in fact, Annie Duke is just writing a book about quitting and knowing when to fold them as it were. And that's not easy, but you do need to know when to cut bait, you know, and when to, what questions to ask yourself to make that decision. If the answers to these questions are, no, it's my thesis still holds. Just like an investor of capital, you're investing your energy. And I still believe my thesis holds. And all through the ups and downs of Essentia, I've known this is common sense. (laughs) What we're doing is common sense. It's one day going to come true. But you got to convince people to be brave and ask for criticism, which is, that's a big ask. It is. People don't naturally do not want that sort of scrutiny. It's like a magnifying mirror that shows all of your flaws. Like, oh, you don't want that. Yeah. So you really need to trust the person who's holding that mirror to not use it against you in any way. Right. So we work very hard at, at making sure people understand like we are definitely a force for good and we are yeah. empathetic and trying to help because we know it's really hard. Yeah. And these are smart people who can, I believe, not the average one in this day and age, but a large number of them are capable of outperforming net of fees, but they got to mitigate these little things that they're doing that are leaking away yeah. that money because you're talking about 75 basis points. It's not that much, no. but if you can help somebody, our average client has improved by 150 basis points a year since starting to work with us. 150 basis points is the difference between top portal and everything else. So Huge. if you can do that, it does make a difference. And it, not only to your um, bonus and your peace of mind, but to the organization and to your investor, who ultimately you are working in service. Any final thoughts to share? I, we're going to run out of time. I want to make sure I give you one last chance to share any wisdom that you have for our group, our audience. I'm definitely a 
case study and perseverance, <laughs> no question about that. And I have to say, just thinking back over the victories that we've had, which I, you know, I don't tend to celebrate enough. And that's something that I'm always trying to work on myself and continuously improve. And that's one, one area that I want to improve it. But when I do stop and think about it, we've won lots of awards, lots of competitions and all of that. And every one of those is really exciting and gratifying. But the fact that I now am at a point where I had an hour-long Zoom call with Daniel Kahneman mm. not that long ago. I mean, that to well, me you, is like the pinnacle. <laughs> you got two, you know? two of your three big behavioral I know, science Richard titles. Taylor, he's, he's, the, he's the last one to fall, but... Well, Meatloaf said two out of three ain't bad, right? (laughs) That he did. R.I.P. Meatloaf. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So on that note, this has been great. Look, Claire, you're a trailblazer, right? You were a trailblazer back in the early part of the millennium when you started your hedge fund in your 20s, and you're a trailblazer now. So I wish you and essentially the best of luck. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for doing the show and have a good rest of your day. You too. It was great having Claire on the show today. If you're ready to take control of your career, visit pathwise.io. If you'd like more regular career insights, become a Pathwise member. Again, it's free. You can also sign up on the website for our newsletter and follow Pathwise on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Thanks and have a great day. Thank you for listening to Career Sessions, Career Lessons. We hope the nuggets of wisdom shared today help guide your path to the successful career of your dreams. This podcast series is part of Pathwise.io, which is here to help you live the career you want. We provide a comprehensive mix of career and professional development events, insights, tools, and exercises backed by a group of leading coaches and other career management experts. If you aspire to something more or just something different in your career, join us at Pathwise.io. You can find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. See you again on the next episode.